0: thanks for listening to a long time in finance with jonathan ford and neil collins in partnership with briefcase news the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media mantra. hello and this is the second episode in our series on britain's national debt is it too big and what should we do about it so investors in UK government bonds revolted in September after Liz Truss's mini-budget. I think it was the only mini-budget you could see from space.
1: I think that's true. <laughs> <It was laughs> anyway,
0: she promised to borrow much more and cut taxes. It destroyed her government after less than 50 days in office and showed that Bill Clinton's campaign manager, James Carville, wasn't wrong when he expressed a desire to be reincarnated as the bond market because that way you go around terrifying everyone. So let's just start by quickly summarising where we got to in episode one. Now, if you haven't listened, I would suggest it's worth going back and listening, because it will give you a lot of information about what we're going to talk about in today's episode. So we talked to the historian James MacDonald about the origins of Britain's public debt and how, from modest beginnings in 1694, it mushroomed over time now his book, A Free Nation Deep in Debt, is absolutely required reading if you're interested in this subject. Now, the national debt starts as a tool to help government fund wars at the end of the 17th century, with the idea that it would be paid off in peacetime. But it isn't. And as the amounts get ever bigger, it becomes a permanent feature, rising to the astronomical level of over 200% of GDP, first in 1815, after the long struggle with Napoleon, and then in 1945, after World War II and World War I, in quick succession.
1: I think it's worth saying at this point that yeah. the national debt is not like your mortgage, something that's got to be paid uh, off over time. Yeah, It's actually a vital part of running a modern economy. So as long as it's not out of control, it is an extremely valuable market to have. Mm. And trying to pay it off would be economic suicide, in my view.
0: And I think if you go back, and as we did in the last episode, you see that even though there's a notional idea that they're going to repay it in the 18th century, they pretty quickly give up on that. Even though the national debt rises and falls quite dramatically over time, it's really only falling proportionately relative to to the size of the economy and the changes due to economic growth. So apart from a little bit of net repayment in the 19th century, there's been almost nothing since then. But even so, it does fall to around 30% of GDP in 1900 in after a century of peace, and again in
1: 1992
0: after peace and a dollop of inflation in the 1970s, which helps to erode away the value of the debt rather it than nicely. It certainly does,
1: as, again, every mortgage holder knows, that if you've got a fixed-rate mortgage, yep. you're welcome inflation yeah. because it shrivels the the outstanding value of the... Liability.
0: One of the things which does come through from talking to James in the last episode was that how there's the these two perils. There's deflation and inflation are the problems if you run a very large national debt. Deflation because it pushes up the nominal value of the debt in real terms, making it harder to service and refinance. And inflation. Well, you know all about inflation because you lived through the seventies.
1: I certainly did, and it was magical the effect that it had on the outstanding debt, both personal, private and state, because there was no such thing as index linking in those days. The government uh, liability shriveled before our very eyes. But
0: it wasn't so popular with the investors in the gilt market.
1: They had a long period where they were being subjected to ever higher bond rates. In the end, they just couldn't stand it any longer.
0: So the two big crises of the 20th century, I think, involved one or other of those two perils. After the First World War, it's deflation, when the government tries to reverse the inflation that's taken place during the war. And that leads to a lost decade of high interest rates, a misfiring economy, the general strike, and heaps of industrial strife. At one point... The government's interest bill was equivalent to over 7% of GDP, which is a serious warning shot. I mean, 10% is trouble. Um, But it
1: did cause also widespread misery and unemployment, which is uh, one of the reasons why most governments have sworn never to get to that position again.
0: Exactly. And after the Second World War, that's exactly what they do. They say, we aren't making that mistake again. We're going to... Have inflation, because that's, <laughs> that's, the, that's <laughs> the obvious solution. Keep well, full employment and keep the bond rates down. We'll, we'll
1: make new mistakes instead.
0: For a while, it sort of worked okay. They actually didn't pay out very much interest in real terms to the bondholders. But of course, in the end, as we know, in the 1970s, it all got wildly out of hand. And basically, everyone went on strike and refused to give the government any more money.
1: Because, of course, the government is always going to be a borrower. So however much it's saving by shrinking the real value of the outstanding debt, it's got to look at the cost of raising new money. Yeah. If the markets won't wear it, as they didn't in 1976, then basically... They've got they, a problem. Well, they've got a problem. And the, the government basically had to go along to them and say, how much do you want in Ooh. order to lend to us?
0: Yes, a poor old government broker, fellow in a top hat in those days. who had to literally go around you know, sort of wringing his hands and going down on his knees. Anyway, so in today's episode, it's a very long way of getting to the point, which is in today's episode, we're going to turn to the current situation and ask, you know, how bad really is it, bearing in mind the history we've looked at with James MacDonald, and what should we do about it? Maybe we should start by just summarising what the problem is that we face. There are probably three, I don't know what you think. There's the national debt has doubled since 2007, so it's growing quickly. Growth, on the other hand, economic growth is slowing, which is bad, because it means the debt is kind of mounting up against GDP. And it's I been- think
1: that's a key point. That's why so many politicians seem obsessed with growth. Yeah. If you don't get the growth, the danger is that the debt will eventually overwhelm you. Yeah. But If you get enough growth, then you can s- sustain really quite a substantial increase in the debt.
0: Yeah, and I think if you think back to the great camequasi budget and Liz Truss's government, brief though it was, (laughs) that was very much their message was, we've got to do everything we can to get growth rates to go up. But they were trying to do it in the wrong way. I think we'll come to talk about that. But then the third point is for a long time, you know, this unfortunate dynamic of lots more debt slowing growth was masked by low inflation. But now rising prices are suddenly causing the interest rates on the debt to go ballooning out. We've seen the cost of debt, this interest cost to GDP ratio, which is quite important, go from 2% to 4% in almost the blinking of
1: an eye. Even 4% is not too bad, but the it's rate As bad of, as it the, was in the 70s. The, the direction of travel is pretty alarming.
0: Well, we've got more debt. I mean, the 70s was terrible because the debt cost was high, but we didn't have as much debt. And another way of looking at it, I suppose, is that we've had a t- series of terrible mishaps over the past few years, which have slowed economic growth, Brexit, pandemic... Combined with a long-standing problem of low productivity, which just means we're poorer relative to other countries than we were. This has an effect on asset prices. Either we let them slide or we go on a crash diet to preserve real values. And either, as we discussed, is is a way of just causing a crisis. Yes,
1: neither is is pleasant.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Is there any pleasant way of doing this? Of
1: course not. It's the dismal science. Uh,
0: I thought you were a bit of an old statist, really. You like all this stuff. So even though the national debt is not as high as it was after World War II, we're nowhere near the 250% we had then. People are worried about the trajectory. Where is it going to go next? One of the people we talked to is Jim Levis, who's a self-styled bond vigilante. Is that fair?
1: I think he almost invented the term, or he <laughs> denies it. He has built a career on trying to see things from the bond buyer's point of view.
0: Yes. So when he's not riding around on a horse, lassoing recalcitrant governments, mainly our own, he's the chief investment officer in charge of public debt at M&G. When we talk to him, he's not really that worried in the immediate term about debt sustainability. But it's fair to say, I think, that he does detect some worrying signs.
2: I think that the most important thing that comes to debt sustainability is, do you have the means in your economy to stop debt going up inexorably and the equation that you might look at when you're thinking about that is what is the average interest rate you're paying on that stock of debt that you have outstanding compared to your growth rate in the economy if your economy is potential growth rate plus inflation is above the average interest rate you're paying on your debt then in theory you'll be delevering over time you'll be able to get the amount of debt in your economy down on the other hand if your interest rate is higher than your growth rate then that debt is going to keep on accumulating and get higher and higher
0: what he thinks is that Britain may be a little too close to the second option
2: it's okay It's sustainable right now, but, you know, obviously there are two things that can go wrong when you look at the UK and wonder whether it's sustainable on those measures. Firstly, what is our growth rate, our potential growth rate likely to be in future? And what is your potential growth rate? And we should think about that. It's basically two things. It's your productivity growth rate and it's the growth rate of your working population. If you add those two things together, you get the potential growth rate of an economy. And for the UK, sadly, both of those two things have not looked very healthy lately. So we've seen a fall in the working population in the UK. And famously, the UK has had a productivity problem for a very long time. And so our potential growth rate a few years ago may have been something like 3% per year. Today, it may be below 1%. We can do things to improve our productivity. We can have more immigration perhaps to help get the working age population growing again. We can build robots and those sorts of things. But certainly our potential growth rate has shrunk down quite a lot. And that means that possibly now it's a bit more finely balanced.
0: I think what Jim is really saying is he's worried that we could slip into one of these old traps. We could slip into the kind of post-World War One trap of high deflation, crushing growth, or we could have an inflationary spiral like within the 70s. Neither, obviously, is at all desirable.
1: Quite. We are a lot closer to some sort of, I hate to use the word tipping point, but I mean it is, it is quite delicately balanced at yeah. the moment whether or not we can get any growth because the British economy seems to be more and more stagnant, very difficult to see where the growth is going to come from, because as we know, governments really can't generate growth.
0: We've got this problem, low growth, we've got a lot of debt stacking up. But the other person we talked to, Felix Martin, a fund manager and writer and author of Money and Unauthorised Biography, takes a slightly different view to Jim. He's also fairly sanguine about the level of borrowing, but he errs towards the side of allowing inflation to take more of the strain. So, so going a little bit edging in the direction of the kind of let's speed up growth, make sure unemployment doesn't go shooting up by letting off the brakes on inflation a bit.
3: It seems everyone acknowledges that the UK, for example, is poorer than we thought, but it's, it's not being explicitly made this point by the bank or other policymakers that there is a choice about how to make this adjustment and that inflation might therefore be part of the solution rather than the problem?
1: This suggestion is superficially very attractive, but it is a bit like being a little bit pregnant. Once you start saying, well, we're going to have a 4% inflation target or a 6% inflation target, recent history has shown, our current experience as well, has shown that it is extremely difficult to bring inflation down once it's Become established. The attraction of 2%, in my view, is it's the sort of maximum that nobody really notices.
0: No, I think that is important. I mean, just be fair to Felix, he's obviously not arguing for some sort of great inflationary spiral like uh, Weimar, Germany, with yeah. the wheelbarrows coming out to move piles of pound notes around the town. But I think whatever what a pound note was, well, whatever a pound note was. But what I think he's arguing is that. We need a shift away to the productive, earning part of the economy, as opposed to the asset-earning part. Really, this is not a, in itself a, a great inflationary acceleration that he's after. It's a kind of way of tilting the balance in favour of what he sees as the productive parts of the economy.
1: Which, which I think, is a very fair point, because one of the consequences of inflation is that it penalizes the old in favor of the young. And since the government policy over the last decade has been the other way around, and us geriatrics have had a wonderful run, basically at the expense of the people in the lower half of the workforce, you could say it's high time that position was reversed. I think it's
0: time to step away from the roulette table and bank your winnings.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I don't know why I'm speaking up for the young. I hate (laughs) it, it's
0: quite... Although you're sympathetic to that, you're still worried, basically, that it's much easier to say this, let's do this, than it is to execute as a policy. I mean, we'll come to why Felix thinks it can be done later, but we'll... But that's your concern, I think. You think we'll end up, you know, the road to hell being paved with good intentions. We'll start off with a brilliant idea and find out we can't manage it. The the, barber boom. If the brilliant... (laughs) Oh, don't
1: don't go there again. If the brilliant idea is 6% inflation and we can keep the lid on it...
0: I think he's 4 to 5, I think he's
1: really talking about. Uh, yeah, but 4 okay, to 5... Okay, you think he's just... I that's don't, his first bid. I think, <laughs> I think once you get to these levels, it is very difficult to stop it. One of the reasons for the Bank of England maintaining a 2% hmm. target is that it sort of gives a bit more credibility to everything else they're doing.
0: Yeah, it's a question of trust. Let's think for a moment about that whole question of, of why these targets exist. And as we discussed, you know, in episode one, after World War II, Britain basically did kind of follow that policy of inflation, keeping people in jobs, hoping that the economy would grow quickly and squeezing the bondholders by effectively... Paying them, not very much, because we were in a closed economy in the post-war period. You couldn't move your capital out of Britain, so it was a captive audience. And you could virtually tell them what they basically had to pay for their bonds and force them to buy bonds at very low interest rates. And it did work for a time. But then came the 70s. It well, suddenly stopped,
1: ran out of steam. Well, it ran out of steam in 1979 with the winter of discontent, where yeah. the game was up both for the markets and for the workforce.
0: Well, this is very much the view of uh, the good bond vigilante like Jim Leavis, who basically worries that once inflation gets ahead of steam up, it basically starts to change people's behaviour and expectations.
2: I guess the question, if we do end up with 4% inflation becoming the normal, 5% or 6%, then we will be in trouble. On the one hand, that will very quickly reduce the value of the outstanding debt. We'll, we'll be inflating away the debt burden to some extent. At the same time, though, we will have a situation where new government borrowing will have to be at higher interest rates to take account of the higher inflation. So the government may have to be borrowing at... 9% if infl- underlying inflation was structurally at 6
0: What's interesting to me about what Jim is saying, basically, is the purpose of this discussion is a way to talk to talk about whether Britain's public debt and the way it's expanding is sustainable. And he seems to me to be very relaxed about that. He basically thinks, it's all fine. What this, are we getting so f- f-
1: het up about? This was a surprise to me. Yeah, I thought that he'd be saying, you know, we can't possibly have a bond market functioning sensibly when you've got double digit inflation Mm. but he has some very powerful reasons to believe Mm. that there are some trends here some some long-term trends which will balance some of the the bad stuff we've got at the moment
0: yeah so and i will come to we'll come to those things in a moment but you know one of the interesting things is he was obviously worried when the trust budget the Kwarteng budget came out, and, but basically not because they were borrowing too much, but because he thought they were borrowing for the wrong reasons. It was kind of, why are we borrowing to fund some tax cuts? We should be borrowing to invest in assets that will drive the productivity of the country. But now that's been solved in the sense that Jeremy Hunt has literally taken an axe to the entire mini budget. He's now getting worried that basically the government's going to go back into austerity mode and we're going to end up having no growth
2: There is a plan to keep the government's debt-to-GDP ratio stable over time. I think bond markets generally like that. I think there's still some scepticism, though, that it's the right thing to do to reintroduce austerity. And I think that whilst we haven't immediately implemented the same sort of cuts that we saw under the David Cameron government initially – Lots of that cost-cutting pressure comes further down down the line. And we know that the economy is incredibly weak at the moment. And so I think there's a bit of scepticism that it's the right thing to do to be taking gas out of the engine at this point in time.
0: The other thing to say is he's also pretty sanguine about inflation. He basically thinks the OBR report's fine, it's going to come down. It could be in a year or two we'll all be sitting around going, what on earth was that what we were worrying about?
2: what i'm saying is if if you genuinely have a strong view that the mega trends remain in place then you can have good years and bad years in bond markets but perhaps we don't revert back to a 1970s style inflation the other big difference today compared to the 1970s is that trade unions still remain relatively weak on the whole wage settlements are a long way below inflation that is not generating the conditions for a wage-price spiral like we saw in the 1970s.
1: This is not just wishful thinking. This is the reason why he is sanguine about it.
0: He thinks, basically, it's going to go back to where it started. But his big point is that even big deficits, given all that is true, are fundable. It's because, basically, investors are always going to need bonds. And in an ageing society, all these oldies... Will need, will need lots of gilts to fund their pension. So there'll be continuing growth in demand for these products. That will keep the interest rate from shooting yes. up. Okay, he's not saying that there are no problems. He's just saying demand's going to rise as well as issuing by the government, and so it will all balance itself out and it will become unsustainable. So it's a bit of a kind of go back to where we were in episode one, the Daniel Defoe quote I really like, where he says, the goodness of the public credit in England is the reason we shall never be out of debt. (laughs) Let us be a free nation deep in debt. And here's Jim explaining this savings dynamic.
2: As people live longer... They need bonds. There are some other arguments that it also drives down inflation as well, but I think the demand for fixed income one is, is the more powerful one. So that's the first reason. The second reason is around technology. Again, going back hundreds of years, you were using a hand-drawn plough to get some grain out of the ground and today we have huge robotized farms harvesting. We have Amazon to help us find the lowest price book in the world. And not just true for consumers, but also for businesses. Technology drives down inflation. That drives down bond yields. And finally, globalisation. This is a global world. You know, Again, through that period of history, we've moved from trading with the next village to Commodore Perry's ships going into the harbour and opening up Japan to China joining the World Trade Organisation. A global world is a lower-priced world. And those trends, I think you can point to some... Moderation perhaps in all of those trends, Brexit helps delay globalisation, trade war between China and the US helps reverse globalisation perhaps too. But those three mega trends will keep inflation low and I would say that actually central banks have been very, very good at taking the credit for low inflation. But actually it's been nothing to do with them at all and that's why they're panicking now, they're getting the blame for inflation, it's nothing to do with them at all.
0: The basic message is pretty clear. If it it ain't broke, don't fix it. So let's talk for a second about inflation targeting, this idea that central banks should set these targets of how high inflation should go. Now, that wasn't a thing in Britain until the 1990s because, well, frankly, before then... Inflation was just too high. It wasn't much point of setting a target of 8% or something.
1: Well, you could have set any target you like, but when (laughs) it was rattling along in double digits, it wouldn't have any credibility unless Ah, you... the key word. Unless you demonstrated how you were going to get there.
0: So the real purpose of targeting is not the number. It's basically, is it deliverable? If people believe it is deliverable, then basically it induces confidence and trust. And if they think it's just shot to pieces, they're going to
1: quickly disregard it. The extraordinary thing about where we are now is that despite the government's attempts to destroy this credibility, yeah. it can still borrow 50-year money at 3.5%. That is amazing, isn't
0: it? I wish I was a government rather than the bond market. <laughs> <laughs> I borrow quite a lot. But even so, there's always that lurking thing at the back of one's mind that rather like the kamikaze budget, something may come along which suddenly changes the calculus and makes everyone think, actually, they're not serious after all. That's why, even though I'm sanguine, I'm quite sanguine, Jim has made me quite sanguine, I'm basically still not 100% well confident that this isn't going to require a little more than just a sort of sucking of the teeth and keeping going.
1: I think the projections do, as government projections always do, assumes that everything will be for the best in the best of all possible worlds. And there won't be some ghastly thing coming along, like, say, a war in Ukraine, to upset all these cosy calculations. Right.
0: It's probably worth talking a little bit about why Felix thinks we should increase the inflation targets. Basically, he's taking the opposite view. He's saying there isn't necessarily a massive crisis, but there is a reason why we should communicate to the markets, the fact that the inflation target is, maybe it won't formally change, but it's going to be higher for a bit. And everyone should just accept that and it'll all be fine. I, um, think,
1: I think they've communicated that pretty sl- strongly <laughs> with, uh, if you look at how the well, bank has behaved.
0: Well, okay, yes, they've certainly, they've certainly shown that they're relaxed about seeing it pop up for a bit. So it's probably worth getting Felix to explain in his own words, you know, why he thinks we should cut a bit of slack on inflation. But
3: we mustn't forget Keynes' famous pronouncements on this topic. He said, the real parents of revolution are the absolutists of contract. And what he meant by this is that you can take this all too far. And if you get in a situation where the imbalances are too extreme to be politically supportable, or if you get in a situation where the orthodox way of doing things, sweating off problems over time, At 2% a year, inflation gradually eating away at these imbalances, wherever it might be. And if young people who are on the wrong end of this don't want to wait around for 20 or 25 years, then maybe the confidence-building thing to do is to come up with a clear and sensible plan for adjusting these imbalances more quickly. What we're talking about is, for example, the idea of raising an inflation target from 2%, which is, after all, a completely arbitrary number to, say, 3 or 4%. This is not something which, you know, crazy yahoos are talking about. This is what Olivier Blanchard, the ex-chief economist of the IMF, has been entertaining on the op-ed pages. It's a perfectly reasonable suggestion to think about and entertain. The challenges are well known. The challenges are how to do this without destabilizing people's expectations about the future, how to do it in a way which actually hopefully makes people's expectations more stable about the path of inflation and economic policy, make it part of a believable, credible economic policy where people think they know where things are going in two, three, four, five years. So basically,
0: what we have is Jim, who says, let's stick with plan A and just keep going. And Felix, who says, well, He's a bit worried that the current approach is running out of credibility and we need to respond to that and come up with a plan that inflates away a bit more of the debt than we were planning to or the markets thought we were planning to and just say to the bond markets, suck it up, guys.
1: I'm not sure that's quite right because the complication from the historical narrative is Hmm. the existence of index-linked debt. Yes, which now is a quarter of the total. Uh, 500 billion quid. That's racking up at... And what? Are, over, and
0: those are bonds where the inflation rate gets added on to some sort of underlying... So they go up when inflation rises, they go up. Yes,
1: so they're issued at a price and both the coupon, the interest, and the principal, the, the amount you've put up, mm. both rise with the Consumer Prices Index. Yeah. So... If the Consumer Prices Index doesn't rise, mm. then it's extremely cheap money for the government. Yeah, But if it's rising at 11%, it suddenly turns into extremely expensive money.
0: Jim is a kind of anxious, well, not really anxious about it. He just thinks, index linked, you issued them, you got a good deal, you have to take the rough with the smooth. And you know, this is him explaining how we've just got to get through this patch, where interest rates will be very high and go back to normal. But he thinks that's quite achievable.
2: The UK was one of the early adopters of the index link gilt or bond. It did so in response to what people call a buyer's strike. Back in the 70s and 80s, the UK had a perpetual problem with inflation. We had high single-digit, even double-digit inflation rates for a very long time. And obviously, as the enemy of the bond investor is inflation, why on earth would you be buying gilts in that kind of environment where there was no attempt to get inflation down? So in the early 80s, the government decided it would issue inflation-linked debt as a kind of way of keeping governments honest. If you've got a large portion of your outstanding government bonds linked to inflation that's going to incentivize you to keep inflation low otherwise you end up with a higher and higher debt burden and that was incredibly successful we've done very well out of issuing index linked gilts if you think about the very start of the marketplace these things were issued at a time when inflation was extremely high it's now extremely high again but for most of the intervening period it's been on a declining trend and people who have bought inflation-linked bonds have effectively overpaid for insurance. You've bought something hoping it will protect you against the bogeyman that never arrived. Obviously the bogeyman arrived when Russia invaded Ukraine. Hopefully 2023 is a year where inflation does come back down again but it has been an expensive year for Her Majesty's Government to borrow because those bonds are issued with coupons where there might be a a 1% coupon plus inflation. So 11% going out the door on interest payments. So an expensive year, but in the context of a fantastic bet for Her Majesty's Government over the long term. So the second issue
0: is this thing, quantitative easing. Well, I don't know. I'll try and
2: explain it. I'm not sure I can.
0: Over the past decade, Bank of England has bought up about 40% of the gilts outstanding. And the way it does it is it basically issues gilts on behalf of the government and then goes into the market and buys back. Roughly the same amount of guilt, but not necessarily exactly the same issue. And it's all to do with not pretending that they're not giving money to the government. And the idea, they say, is, of course, that the purpose is not to just fund the government's deficits. It's to drive down interest rates, so force investors to put money into riskier assets like equities. They want them to buy shares in companies to get the economy moving. That's the sort of idea.
1: So they create new paper which they then sell and give the proceeds to the government. Correct. Because since the government owns the Bank of England, yep. it's difficult to tell who is issuing what. Yeah. But it certainly gets the government round the next corner because yeah. suddenly it's got money to spend.
0: And it can do what they did after World War II, which is it can issue bonds and basically control what interest rate it pays on them. But there are two nasty side effects with QE, which we ought to talk about. The first is that when the bank buys this... These bonds back from the market. It puts a huge amount of reserves into the system which belong to the people it's bought them back from and it has to pay interest on that and interest on those reserves is at the overnight rate. So it's essentially turned a fixed rate liability into a floating rate one if interest rates shoot up as they have been well, i was going then to say the, then the cost of that goes it was fine the when
1: bank rate was 0.1 yeah. percent because essentially f- it was free money well i gather they're
0: paying 30 billion quid yeah every year to the banks and it's basically just a subsidy
1: for nothing yes and no the jury is out on this as with so much in this area yes you can say witchcraft. It, is, it is free money <laughs> to the banks yeah But then if they weren't paid, you could describe it as another tax on the banks. Oh, I can't even begin to get my mind around that. probably easier to let them make the money on it and tax them on the profit. Anyway, I'm going to move on.
0: (laughs) The second drawback here is basically that the the bank is not saying we're doing this forever. It's basically saying we're going to sell all these bonds back to the market. And that process, of course, selling 40% of the gilt market back to the gilt market, On top of all the new issues the government is throwing out to fund its deficits is, people think, going to push up interest rates quite a lot because there's just going to be too much supply.
1: Yes, but uh, as I think Jim believes, you don't need to do this.
2: Yeah, well, this is what he said when we asked him about
0: it.
1: When
2: I suggested that the Bank of England might one day cancel all the guilt that it holds as part of quantitative easing, so all these guilt certificates that theoretically are in the vaults of the Bank of England... I think that the things that made me nervous were really reputational. Does this look a bit emerging markety? But if you think about it, the money that the bank printed to buy those gilts is already in circulation. Those gilts are are in the vaults of the Bank of England now. You could quite easily allow them to mature over the course of their lives, you know, going out for 30 years. They need never be sold back into the market. So do they really exist anymore? The money that was printed does but if it's not creating inflation now and I don't think it is why would it create monetary inflation in the future and if it did in the future well you could do something else at that time to reverse the impact of it either through interest rates or draining liquidity from the economy in some other way so I don't worry about it too much if they did it I don't think they will do it though because of the reputational risks around that far easier just to forget about them and let them mature gradually and slowly over the next 30 years.
0: But he doesn't rule out the idea of the bank selling some gilts back into the market from time to time just to manage the interest rate. But he doesn't think you need to do that. He basically thinks this is a problem that can magically disappear with a touch of a wand. I feel better already.
1: (laughs) 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 I think his point is that you should Sell them back into the market when you want to tighten up uh, monetary conditions. Yes, but not just willy-nilly. No, quite. They should just sit there. They're not really an incubus waiting to destroy us.
2: Oh, I don't like incubuses (laughs) that come to destroy me. It's just another tool in the armory. Why not? raise interest rates. That seems like the easiest thing to do. But if you want to do something slightly different in the transmission mechanism, then you could sell those gilts.
0: We talked in the first episode about Britain inflating the debt away after World War Two, deliberate strategy, keep employment up after the war, interwar years had been so, you know, you had the depression, lots of unemployment, and the fact that this was possible because the UK was a closed market and it had capital controls. I was interested to see what Felix would say to you know, the, the fact that we're now in a very open economy and lots and lots of international investors invest in UK government debt and therefore, basically, it's a, is that not somewhat complicated? And also, UK investors can put their money wherever they like. They're not trapped to buy gilts anymore. Does this make it difficult, more difficult now, to pursue the inflationary option? And this is what he says.
3: Could this be done by one country or one G10 country in particular on its own? That is quite hard to believe. And that's why I think it's important that, you know, you had Blanchard coming out and proposing this. I think what he's saying is not, please, one country, go off on your own and and, and do this. So what do you reckon?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I suppose if you had a sort of international conspiracy to uh, defraud the bondholders worldwide. Defraud, that's a very
0: strong word.
1: (laughs) What do you think inflation does to a bondholder? nibbles, (laughs) nibbles,
0: <laughs> nibbles away at it some of the coupons. around the edges,
1: so that when you get the bond out at the end of its life, you find that the moths have eaten yeah.
0: it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I have to say, I think that this is, although it's a very interesting idea, I think it does make you wonder whether it will be easy to coordinate this sort of international gang, as you call them, of bond-issuing nations... <laughs> without (laughs) and you know if you look at things like the euro crisis you don't get the impression that it's always very easy that different countries with entirely different circumstances will all come together to help each other out they seem to take the opposite view
1: i think that's right and it's probably just as well Because otherwise, if it was easy to organize an international conspiracy to rob the bondholders, then uh, it would have already been done. What would they do? They would
0: lend money to the moon or something, rather than to any country.
1: (laughs) Well, of course, we've (laughs) seen... Or just buy lots of shares. (laughs) We saw a a taste of this, because when bond yields in some European countries, notably Switzerland, went negative, Mm. it was actually more worthwhile to keep your Swiss francs in a large worm-proof box under your garden than it was actually to buy Mm. the bonds because you were penalised for so doing.
0: Go back to episode one, we talked about the national debt concept and the importance of trust in a market-based system. The fact that this is a market is very important to its operation. Both Jim and Felix, in fact, talked about it very critically. And this is sort of interesting as a partnership. They said, look countries and borrowers or lenders neither can get their way absolutely in this system it's a, it's a, it's essentially a system where they negotiate and they have to deal with the facts on the ground and basically they've both got to make compromises to make it work and here's felix just talking us through that between creditors
3: and debtors it's inevitable it's a partnership you know you have to work together and you can go in as a real headbanger and insist that you know you must be paid back absolutely to the penny the real value of what was lent, and there can be no adjustments on the way, even if there have been big surprises, big changes in the real wealth of the country you're dealing with, big changes in the ability to muster tax revenue, and so on and so forth, many of which might have nothing to do with the economic policies, foolish or sensible, of the government. You can do that, but it will not necessarily result in the best outcome for you as a creditor, for your clients as a a bond fund investor. The aim is to try to maximize the real value of these investments for your creditors in in a reasonable fashion. Again, it all comes back to what is a realistic and credible policy framework, what realistically and credibly can be transferred from the debtor, which is the government in this case, to the creditor which is you know the pension funds and the insurance companies and so on which which own the stuff it's it's not in the government's interest to wreck this market it's not in the government's interest to impoverish all the pensioners and insurance companies in britain and equally you know it's not in the interests of pension insurance companies to insist on something which is going to result in a revolution
0: and i think that's right i think it's very important that the, the, the strength of the system if we go back to what we talked about with james macdonald at the beginning is that it is a market-based system it's not a kind of uh it's a system with its own internal rules even though those the you know the the criteria and the and the and the general behavior of the players can change from time to time broadly they accept that they are locked in a partnership partly because they're both to some extent dependent on the other. There are UK investors who have to buy gilts and they will want to continue lending to the UK government because it's kind of what they need to do. And the UK government needs to listen to its creditors because it basically can't do without them.
1: I think that's right. It it is a sort of uh, partnership is a bit of a strong word. I would say it's a sort of um, dynamic tension between the two sides. And if one starts to abuse its position, then the relationship breaks down.
0: So at the end of all this, are you reassured about the level of the national debt? Do you feel we're okay? We can carry on for a bit longer?
1: Well, I am to some extent, yes. But again, if you say you're reassured, knowing the government's propensity to spend money it hasn't got, there's always a danger it will say, well, actually, what's another 100, 200, 300 billion between friends, and you get the sort of trustonomics, which did completely destroy, fortunately only for a short time, the trust between the markets and the government's ability to try and raise the money that it's spending.
0: Well I think they've been cured of uh, the desire to, to meddle in that way but I think uh, it was a hell of an education I think education. the one thing the only thing we really can say is the the one thing is we will never be out of debt. <laughs> yeah, as a Absolutely. country. Absolutely. And,
1: and, and we shouldn't be. And we shouldn't be. I think that's the point. You know, it's all very well saying, you know, if you project things 5 years out we'll balance the budget and then we'll start repaying the debt. It's entirely the wrong thing to do and nobody believes that you ever get to that point mm. uh, but there's a sort of cozy fiction which means that somewhere in, in the broad sunlit uplands of 5 years hence the budget will be balanced and the mm. uh, the debt will start to be repaid and we'll all be happy yeah. we wouldn't be even yeah. if we got to that point yeah
0: you know we end as we started with the great daniel defoe saying the public credit in england is so good that we shall never be out of debt.
1: (laughs) That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is Briefcase.news. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.